You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's story about a former Marine who has a passion for doing the same thing we do here on the Hazard Ground, and that's telling veteran and military stories. We'll get to him coming up in just a moment. Just a few reminders as we've been beating you guys up the last couple of weeks. Keep the reviews on Apple Podcasts coming. We are inching ever closer to the top 100 podcasts on Apple, and we need your help to do so. So go to Apple, leave a review. Doesn't have to be a long one, but just something short. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the podcast. Tell us why you like the show, and that will help us out immensely. So continue to do that. You can do it right from your smartphone. It's really easy. Also, want to remind you guys about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com. You click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the sponsors tab. You get to do all of your normal Amazon shopping, whatever it may be. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities featured here on the show. As long as you go to hazardground.com first and then go to Amazon from our website, we'll get credit for it. And you can do the same thing from your smartphone. Just go to a web browser, and it'll direct you right to the Amazon app so all of your credit card information, everything is saved. Really easy, really user-friendly, and you can help out veterans all across America just by going to hazardground.com first. Finally, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Let's keep our social media following growing uh, as we can tell more people about these stories. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Also, download the Kill Cliff app, the Kill Cliff TV app. You can watch all of our podcasts there as well. And if you're watching this on the YouTube channel, we certainly appreciate you guys consuming the Hazard Ground that way. On to this week's story about a former Marine sergeant who, after his career and deployment to Afghanistan, NAMU, went on to be a filmmaker and has made notable short stories, one that actually won an award at the Victory, the podcast film festival. It's a three-minute video called A Marine Corps Story. It is outstanding. His latest works include Between the White Space and his most popular one, The Hun. He is Tyler Mendison joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Tyler, welcome, man, and thank you for being here. Thanks a lot for having me. All right. Excited to talk to you, man. As I said before, this is a, uh, a passion of yours, telling great stories, telling stories about veterans, and we do the same thing here. So I'm glad we sort of have that synergy uh, going together. And, and I, I told you before we started recording, I watched a Marine Corps story, man, and it really, what stood out to me, it just evoked a lot of emotions and a lot of things. You know, it, it, for anybody who's been downrange and has deployed, it sort of hit all those right notes and brought me right back to a lot of those same similar feelings. And full disclosure, like I was doing multiple things at the same time when I was watching it, I just put it on. But it was one of those things where I just stopped doing everything else and it just sucked me in. And I'm like, damn, like I'm back in that mindset again, man. And it was uh, it was yeah. powerful. So it was great stuff, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm glad it held your attention. <laughs> <laughs> for three minutes, it got all of my attention. Well done. Uh, start back at the beginning for you. How and why did you get in the Marine Corps? All right. So basically, uh, my father was in the Marines back in the 80s. And he was someone I always looked up to just being an excellent father and, you know, just overall amazing person and being a little kid and seeing his photo up on the wall, big photo with the, you know, wearing his dress blues. It was always something as a kid that I, you know, looked up to. And, uh, just like many people of the war on terrorism generation, uh, nine 11 is what really was my calling to serve. I was just about to turn nine years old and um, basically, from that moment on, I decided that I was going to go in the Marine Corps. 
And, you know, my whole time growing up, I just stuck with it. I said I was going to go in the Marines right after high school. And that's exactly what I did. And um, I originally was going to go infantry, but they basically had a really long waiting list at the time, basically over a year. So I said, screw that. And um, I went in under the contract or sorry, construction uh, MOS field since the Marines can't choose their specific jobs. Um, and I landed with armor. Interesting. Now, when you were nine years old and decided all this, where were we in relation to 9-11? I know you're fairly young, uh, but it, when, when yeah. does 9-11 happen? How old are you? So, I mean, I was eight, literally like oh, okay. my birthday, my birthday, September 23rd. So I was just about to turn nine. Um, I live in New York, not yep. New York City, but about an hour and a half away. And um, my father is also a police officer. Um, you know, he's done that for over 20 years. And he uh, he actually was called to ground zero and was helping clean up the bodies and everything like that. So just being in New York and having that background really it, it played a big toll on me and it, it changed my life forever as it did so many other people. And that passion to serve, you know, stuck with me from that moment on. And, you know, it was always my hope and dream that I'd be able to go to Afghanistan um, to serve and, you know, fight for my country. And, you know, I was, I was lucky to do that in 2012. Interesting. Uh, also a New Yorker, native New Yorker, also Stepfather, policeman, brother was a union worker in New York. They both were at ground zero. Um, where in New York, just out of curiosity? So I'm from Poughkeepsie. Okay. Um, Long I was born in Yonkers, okay. so pretty close to New York City. Yeah. So I'm, I'm at all on the island. Um, but, you know, okay. it's not often you hear people say it was my dream to go to Afghanistan. I mean, yeah. that's a pretty perverse dream, especially for a nine or 10 year old kid. <laughs> Uh, after the war broke out, I mean, I know your dad was a was a former Marine, but there was no of your parents talking you out of it, realizing that if you do this, you're absolutely going to war with a chance you'd lie. I mean, nobody really expected us to be in war for t- <laughs> over 20 years. So, uh, no. That's a kid. He'll be up. He'll be up by the time, you know, we'll yeah, be done with this by the time he's I'm old. I'm sure enough. they figured the war would be over by then. But no, my parents were always supportive of me going in the military and Um, so after my dad got out in the eighties, he was going to go in the Marine reserves and keep, so he was, he was in the, uh, the mechanic aviation field and they didn't have his MOS that he wanted. So he ended up switching to the air national guard and he stayed with them for, I think 23 total years of service. Uh, he just retired from them in 2013 or 14. Um, so, and during that time, I, believe in uh 2007 he deployed to baghdad and um also he did a little bit of time in afghanistan as well so you know i grew up basically watching him serve and deploy and i i wanted to return the favor and say like i'm doing this not just for you know to show that i'm proud of my father and like want to do something that he has done but I want to do it for my country and because I believe it is the right thing to do and it is my calling. It's pretty awesome. All right. So uh, you're going away to boot camp. Clearly your dad has told you what to expect, right? I mean, this, none of this was a shock to you. Yeah. So not even just him preparing me, but also um, watching a lot of videos on boot camp. Um, I remember the, there was that documentary uh, 
ears open, eyeballs click. I don't know if you've seen it, mm-hmm. um, but that was a very interesting look into boot camp as it is. And, you know, it really prepared me for uh, how mental it was going to be um, physically. Thank God. Um, from the time I was a sophomore in high school, I was playing varsity football and that really prepared me physically, you know, going in the weight room. And, um, from junior year on, I started running three miles a day, um, just to prepare for all the running that we were going to be doing. And I hate running. I still hate running, but, um, that definitely helped out a lot. So after boot camp, where are you headed? So after boot camp, I went to Fort Lee, Virginia, nice. which is where I did my MOS school. And then um, I remember specifically getting, we had three choices, quote unquote choices of where we could go uh, for a duty station. And I put, uh, I believe I put Cherry Point number one, because that's where my dad was stationed. So I, I thought it would be kind of cool to stay East Coast and go where he was, Um and number two, I think I put Camp Pendleton. And then number three, I put uh, overseas, like for Okinawa. And I ended up getting my third choice, of, of course. course. So yeah, of course. Okinawa, yeah, the Marine Corps doesn't it, care. You, you re- the Army does the same thing. You realize if you put the crappiest selection on there, they'll give you that one. for If you just put exactly. it on there. Like, you yeah. know, when we had an OML list for officers, it was 10, right? Like, <laughs> you put like 10 on there. If you put like Fort Riley, Kansas, oh, they're sending you. You're going. Yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll end up there. No one so puts Fort Polk, Louisiana for a reason. The military, yeah. know to put your best choice last, last. and then that will go. <laughs> Completely counterintuitive. So yeah. uh, you're headed to Okinawa. Excited or no? I was excited because I had never been out of the country before. Oh, really? So it, I, just as like a person, like I was excited to explore and see something new. And, um, you know, the flight is 16 hours long or something like that. And you know, I just went to the airport and then got on a huge plane and went to an airport in uh, Tokyo, which from there I would fly out to Okinawa because the flights are, you have to fly domestic to Okinawa. Um, and it's like a whole nother world there, which, you know, I didn't know what to expect. But I mean, I from the time I got there, I absolutely loved Japan. O- Okinawa itself, it was it was complicated because we had so many rules um, being stationed there because of, you know, dumb military members getting in drunken incidents yeah. on or off base and the the country really uh, taking that seriously. So there was a lot of like lockdowns that we had for drinking off base. And I mean, I was underage at the time anyway, so I had to wait till I was 20 because 20 is the legal age there for uh, military members. But um, I mean, I just I was with such a good group of people and Literally, I mean, from the moment I, the very first day I actually got to my unit, we got rushed into this uh, theater and the battalion commander came on stage and basically gave us a presentation that we were going to be deployed to Afghanistan. So from that moment on, we were literally nonstop training for Afghanistan. So I I didn't even have like a, a break to, you know, get used to Japan. I was immediately getting you know, prepared for war. Uh, yay or nay on sake? Uh, sake's awesome. I would say habu sake 
would be my choice. Okay. Um, right. Very. You drink a lot of Sapporo beer. there. I mean, Sapporo is that the beer of choice over there? Sapporo was actually my first legal beer. Oh, there you go. Finally, okay. yeah. They get yep. huge cans here in the states of that stuff. It's like the old Foster's yeah. oil can. You're drinking that yeah. thing for an hour. It's a commitment. So, yep. <laughs> are you, do you know where you're going in Afghanistan? We had no idea at the time until a little later on. They told us we were going to the Helmand province, um, going to be stationed out of uh, Camp Leatherneck. All right. Uh, okay. So one of the one of the major posts. When you get yeah. there, um, in, you get there in 2012. Now, um, what is your mission? Um, what do you know about what you're supposed to do every day? Right. So I was part of Combat Logistics Battalion Four. And uh, we were basically in support of the infantry units out there. Um, I think it was RCT3, if I'm correct. I can't remember. It's been so long. Um, But basically, we were in support of the grunts. And I personally was uh, placed in charge of the armory for uh, a motor transportation company. And basically... I was in charge of the armory for them. I prepared all the weapons for them and repaired them and got them ready for, you know, our battalion was basically going out on these, you know, motor T convoys with all these tons and tons of supplies to, to go uh, in support of the, the grunts and to, to transport to different fobs. And in that time, uh, my company Gunny, who, you know, was really one of the most supportive people of me as a, you know, individual member of the company, um, basically was like, do you want to go out as a gunner on these convoys? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I'd love to. So he basically worked in time where we got some, um, military police people to be sort of armory custodians to work under me, to, to take over for me when I was gone. And then I would just go out on the convoys which is what they would do in their spare time too um and i would just be a machine gunner for for the convoys so i did a bunch of those was i mean i assume that's exciting for you right like this is part of that whole dream of going to afghanistan you didn't want to sit in an armory all day long uh, well that's what i'm saying you know i I didn't want to be the quote-unquote fobbit where you Mm -hmm. know you just sit on a base the whole time and it's like you know you deployed but did you really do anything that's worthy of a deployment Um, so I was happy to actually be going out of the wire and, you know, doing things that could get me in combat. I mean, obviously no one really looks forward to combat if you know what war is like, but, you know, I wanted to do something that would be worthy of me saying that I served my country and went to war. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's. It's a personal badge of honor, right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah just to just to have the. It's almost like just one story. That's all I need is one story, right? One story, yeah. and, and and that sort of you know personally qualifies me. Um, and and yeah. you know we say that sort of tongue in cheek. I mean, I, I don't look at anybody who went downrange and didn't get into you know contact as somebody who didn't deploy. But I understand the feeling a lot of us felt that you kind of wanted it to be real. Um, yeah, you know, to, to, at least to test your metal. Yeah. And you also see that a lot with veterans now, like, um, you know, if you come in contact with veterans who either didn't deploy or didn't get into situations that are considered like, you know, combat or dangerous or anything like that, they sort of like have this guilt or a depression because of 
them feeling like they aren't worthy because of everyone else who did do those things. And it's sort of like this thing where, you know, someone from uh, Iraq or Afghanistan might not think that they're worthy of someone who was in Vietnam and someone in Vietnam might not think that they're worthy of someone who fought in World War II. And it's like this perpetuating thing of feeling like you're not good enough compared to what others have done. Yeah, certainly. Um, so how often are you going outside the wire? Like what's your operational tempo? You know, is it, is it more than you expected? Was it crazy or was it just sort of moderate? Because you're there at a so, time in Afghanistan where things are picking up. Yeah. I mean, it, it was pretty, it was pretty intense at the time just for like our military operations in Afghanistan um, at that time. But for me personally, um, I basically went out on multiple, um, like there were, you know, two to three weeks at a time convoys to different fobs. Usually would, we would stop at one and then head to another one that's like way, you know, far away. Um, and it was just, um, I mean, it was, it was tough also because I was in charge of my armory and I had to, I was the only one who could do repairs and do all of the actual armor things that my motor or sorry, my military police, uh, Marines who were working for me couldn't do. So I sort of had to also take that into account and I couldn't go out on, you know, maybe as many as I would have liked, but you know, I certainly did enough time to where I'm, you know, I could say I'm satisfied with it. So I don't want to give it away because I really want people to watch a Marine Corps story, but that was factual, correct? That was based on yes. your actual events? All um, true story that, you know, it was something that I've never, I, I, I've maybe told like two people in my life about that situation happening. And the the film festival that the guys from Entourage did on the Victory of the Podcast, it sort of like gave me an opportunity to share share that story and talk about something that, you know, I do think about from time to time. And I, I just felt like it was the perfect opportunity with the, the three-minute format that they basically had in their rules. I, I, I will ask you if you want to share it because I want people to watch it. But if you want to tell the story, I want to give you the opportunity to tell it. But I, I don't know if that's going to diminish the impact of watching it after the fact, because I didn't know the story personally until I had watched the three minutes. Um, so yeah. I'll kind of defer to you. We could talk about something different. I know there was other experiences, but uh, I, I'm, I'll defer to you on this. Well, I guess I won't say the full story, but I will say sort of like what it is about. So maybe we can draw them in to, okay. to watch it. <laughs> Uh, definitely check it out. It's on YouTube. It's called a Marine Corps story. Um, basically it's a three minute narration of a, just a, a moment in time from my, uh, Afghanistan deployment where I was on one of these convoys and just a situation I ran in where I had split seconds to basically make a, a decision on whether I shot and killed someone to basically save you know, my fellow Marines lives, if it came to that, because, you know, a lot of times you're put in a situation where you don't know in these current wars, if, you know, who is the enemy? Yeah, it, It's sort of like Vietnam, where, you know, the man in the black pajamas, the Viet Cong were mixed in with the civilians. And they're, you know, it's hard to tell when there's not a standard right. 
When it's not good guys in one uniform, bad guys in another uniform, you know who to shoot at all the time. Exactly. And the rules of engagement were crazy. So basically you have to like call in to your, you know, your lieutenant to basically request to engage in combat or, you know, request to fire or whatever you're going to do. And, you know, in the back of your head, you're thinking like, if I fuck this up, I could be put in Leavenworth and, you know, sit the rest of my military time or however long of making, my life making big rocks in the I, rocks. Yeah. Because I made a decision that I thought would be saving lives of my fellow Marines. I so mean, it was, I, I will say this much. Um, I had a very similar story and I think that's kind of what drew me in. Um, and it was oddly enough, a white vehicle as well. Wow. Um, and, and I think the point is, and again, we'll, we'll move on after this because I, I want to talk more about your personal experience, but there are certain experiences you have downrange where the memories are so crystal clear and it doesn't matter how far you get away. We talked before, you're like, hey, it was so long ago, I can't remember. There are certain things that they're, they're galvanizing moments that you never, ever forget. And when you were telling your story, all of these emotions and all of these thoughts and all of these sort of feelings, like I could feel my skin, like goosebumps starting to come up on my skin as I was watching it because I quickly... And brought back to that same exact moment, that same exact place where it is a split second decision between life and death. And that is something that, that, that I, let's put it this way. That's like the groundwork for PTSD, right? Yeah. That, is the, that is the framework and groundwork for how PTSD develops. And then you just start stacking those incidents on top of one another. And yep. you don't really get a grasp of, uh, without clearing the first one off the deck, the second one has more weight. Um, and so yeah. from that standpoint, yeah, it was, uh, man, it was, it was very impactful for me to watch. So again, a Marine Corps story. I highly suggest you guys all take three minutes. It's absolutely worth your time. Um, that said there, I'm sorry, I got a little bit uh, emotional there. Um, that said there, there were, there were other, um, you know, incidents on this deployment that you had to deal with. Like what, what other ones sort of stand out to you? I mean, anytime anyone, of my fellow Marines left the fob, like, you know, there's things that you never forget and things that will stick out in your mind. I can tell you literally yesterday. So I was riding back from a road trip, uh, from Minnesota. I had to go to a wedding. So it was, you know, it was a 19 hour ride back to New York. And, uh, I didn't even tell my girlfriend who was riding with me this, but you know, there's this one point in time when it was, you know, it was nighttime and we were, uh, passing by this big building with a lot of lights on it, like just all the way down this building. It must've been like a a warehouse or something. And I distinctly just like, it brought me right back to Afghanistan. I remember leaving the fob every time we would leave camp Leatherneck. I just distinctly remember like how long of a process it was like leaving that base and always like in the middle of the night, you know, or very early morning you're leaving and I don't know what it was, but there was just this giant string of lights. I, I can't remember if it was on a building. I think it was on just these big metal posts. But I mean, like miles long of these lights. And you're so tired at the time. And you just see this endless row of lights just as you're slowly leaving this base. And you were thinking to yourself, like, am I going to get hit by an IED this time? You know, what's going to happen when I leave this, when I leave the wire this time? And 
you know, I would always make my prayers before I left. Um, I'm not like overly religious, but you know, I prayed when I was in Afghanistan and every time I would just think like, what's going to happen after these lights go away. And when I was on this ride yesterday, like I thought about that immediately when I saw those lights, like it, it just took me back and it was just this little out of body experience that I'm sure you can relate with just certain things in your life, like just instantly bring you back. And, you know, they're just memories that don't go away. And, you know, even though there's some things that are like blurry in your mind, there's certain things that just like are so crystal clear that, you know, it's, it's impossible to, uh, sorry, it's impossible to erase that memory. Yeah. Um, and, and my fellow Baghdad compatriots will remember the trip out to the flying man, which literally it took you like 20 minutes to get off base. But the flying man, for those who aren't familiar with Baghdad International Airport, there literally is a statue of a man with wings and his arms are spread all the way out and he has wings and it's the flying man. And allegedly the story goes that, you know, he was a man who tried to fly and he was killed because he tried to fly. And uh, anyway, but there's a big statue of him almost in, in jest. Uh, but the flying man was often referred to as the hugest checkpoint at Biap, um, but very similar in that aspect. You just, you know, once you got to the flying man, you knew it was game on. Yep. So, uh, you know, it's crazy how, and I've said this before, uh, it's crazy how the flashbacks almost sometimes are as, I don't, what's the right word? I want to say debilitating or crippling, but they're almost as memorable as the incidents themselves. At least yeah. for me, they are. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I can remember certain times where flashbacks hit me hard, and where I was and, and just, you know, uh, I was at the beach one year, uh, a couple of years ago with my family and we went out to the beach to watch a 4th of July celebration mm. right on the boardwalk. And as soon as the first one went off, I could not stop hearing radio calls in my ear for literally 15 minutes straight. Every time wow. one exploded, I kept hearing radio calls in my ear, like as we were driving through the street, it's just, you know, those kind of things just stick with you, uh, yep. forever, as you said. So, um, as that deployment goes on, um, do any of your guys, uh, you know, end up being wounded or killed? So we had a couple wounded with various incidents. Um, I don't think any that were like heavy combat related, but we had, um, one guy, one guy died, um, in one of our sister units that was out with us. And, um, I'm trying to think, honestly, mainly, it was the suicides after the deployment that yeah. hit us the hardest. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, how does the deployment end for you? Um, so I ended up having to fly back, I think a month, a little bit. I, I was in the Advon group just to, to prepare the armory. Um, so the advance party that went back uh, just a little bit before everyone else. Um, so I basically did the seven months and then, flew back to Japan um, and just got the armory ready back in uh, Oki for everyone to come back. And, you know, it, it really sucked. I remember getting back to Okinawa and we had like this little welcome home party. And you think of all these touching moments where, you know, family and, you know, girlfriends and everybody are waiting around for you with signs and they run up to you and hug you on the flight line and all that stuff. And at the time I was in a long distance relationship. She obviously wasn't there. 
and my family wasn't there and only the staff and CEOs and officers who were married and, you know, had family that were around basically got this warm welcome from their family. And I, you know, I was a 19 year old kid, just like, all right, I'm back and didn't have anyone to greet me and just went back to my room. And it was, it was lonely. I'm with you. I I was single for both my deployments. Everybody got a hug. I just stood around like, okay, time to go home now. May as well do, yeah. you know, you're just standing around looking, will somebody hug me? So, somebody <laughs> pretend that they know me. Somebody just come up and say hello, shake my hand, give me something, man. Yeah, it was, exactly. it was the same way for me. Like, I remember we got back into the armory, you know, we pulled up and, you know, everyone's there shaking hands and this, that, and the other. And I shake hand with the general and this, that, and that. And I just start looking around. I'm like, I guess I just go home now, huh? Like, everyone's standing here celebrating and smiling. I'm like, I'm just standing like a schmuck by myself. Time to go. Yeah. So, yep. uh, yeah, I, I certainly understand that. Um, when you had got back, and you finally had a moment to reflect on it all. Um, did did you kind of fulfill the dream that you had talked about? Like, was the experience enough for you? I would say yes. I mean, you can't ever predict or say exactly what you're going to do. And I think it's foolish to do that because you never know what's going to happen in war. You never know what your orders or what your unit is doing or like anything like that. You can't control it. So you just do the best you can at what you're given. And the group of guys that I was with in the armory and the the memories that I have and the experience and everything like that, I'm blessed with having. And, I, you know, I'm very fortunate to have done it. And there's times when I'll say that I miss Afghanistan and I wish I was back, you know, with the same people. And just because... I think it was such a fulfilling time in my life as me fulfilling a purpose that I set out to do. Yeah. Um, I, I, there are definitely times, uh, especially now that I'm all grown up and I have a family of my own where I think Baghdad was easier, man. All you had to do was stay alive. All you had to do was stay alive. Like as as difficult as that was, it was so much easier than being a grown adult and having responsibilities. All I had to do was stay alive. Um, that and find random crap to buy on the internet. Uh, other than that, those are the <laughs> toughest choices you had to make if you were yep. a single guy like you and I were. Obviously, if you have a family and deployed, which I never had the experience of doing, it's a completely different scenario. So, and, yeah. I, and I always tip my cap to those. You know, I talk with my wife now about you know one day hopefully taking a brigade you know on a deployment, and she looks at me crazy and she's like, "You're going to leave the kids?" I'm like, "No, I'm not going to leave the kids. I plan on coming back." You know, like it's just, but it's a completely different mindset when you have a family. Yep, um, so exactly. hats off to all those people who, who had to deploy and leave kids behind. That's just a, that's a whole different level. Um, so after Okinawa, when you get back to Okinawa, you're moving on to a different base before you head out to your MU or no? So I had basically around six or seven months from the time I got back to when I got transferred to my next duty station, got the orders to the 22nd MU in North Carolina, uh, Camp Lejeune. And also, by the way, not on your list, not on my <laughs> list, no. but you know, I was okay with it. And I was like, Oh, wow. Now I'm going to a Mew and I'm going to deploy again. There's no break. My entire time on active duty was deployments, which, you know, I'm fine with because I didn't want to be one of those people who just got stuck on, you know, one base and did nothing their whole time. Yeah. Well, stuck. it makes it go by quick, right? Yes. It went by fast. And, um, it was interesting because literally my orders said I was going to be the armory chief um, for the Mew. And that is, you know, a higher, it's basically a staff NCO billet. And I was a corporal at the time. 
So I was, I knew I was stepping into some big shoes and, you know, I was just excited to, to film. So you're going on a mute and you know, you're not going to Iraq or Afghanistan at this point in time. Well, Iraq was over by this time, but uh, theoretically, of course, theoretically yeah. it's over now. Um, but we digress. That said, uh, were you sort of upset that you weren't going back to combat and you had a whole different sort of deployment in front of you? You know, I'm no, because I was just ready for a new experience. And I knew that, you know, a ship deployment compared to a normal combat deployment, completely different thing. And from what I had heard, like, you know, the 22nd Mew and the, the, the ones that do the med float get to go on really cool libo calls at, you know, in different countries. I was just ready to go explore countries. So I was, I don't know. I was just, I was ready for a different experience. Well, I guess you got it, obviously. I mean, it's, you know, uh, it's funny. I remember uh, you, you had the fortunate pleasure, I think, you know, with the benefit of hindsight of being moved all over the place. I remember when I was on active duty, I was literally that guy who was stuck at Fort Hood, Texas, which is a quasi miserable place to be. Uh, clean yeah. is just not the, uh, not the hot spot they made it out to be in the brochure. That's for sure. But, you know, yeah. it was one of those things where um, I kept saying to my command, I'm like, can, can we go somewhere? Can we do something? Like, I, 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 you know, I was supposed to be all I could be, or at least that's what, what the slogan was. And all I was doing was rotting in the middle of the Texas heat. Uh, and I kind of felt that way, which is part of the reason why um, when I was offered to leave active duty, I took it because I'm like, this isn't we're not doing anything like this. And of course, it was a pre 9-11 world. Um, yep. But I just felt like it was one of those things where it was so mundane, so Groundhog's Day, so boring. Uh, but you yep. get the absolute opposite experience of that where you're always on the go and you get to see the whole world, which I think is pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I still feel very fortunate for that because I think at the time it was, you know, it's hilarious to me that I wanted to go infantry at the time. I wasn't able to, or I mean, I could have if I waited that year and some change to go. But the guys who I knew who became grunts, you know, right at the same time I was, who basically wanted to deploy and, you know, that was their their whole purpose. They wanted to go to war and fight and everything. They ended up getting stuck on like Camp Lejeune or Camp Pendleton. Their entire time didn't deploy at all. And, you know, they were basically just doing drills out in the field and, you know, mundane shit like cleaning. And they were just pissed that, you know, I didn't end up being a grunt and I deployed to Afghanistan. I was a gunner on convoys and then I got to go on the Mew and I got to do all this shit that they didn't get to do. So I don't know. I, I find it kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very similar to me. I, when I deployed, I probably saw more 75% more combat infantry time than, than the infantry did or 75% yeah. more combat time than the infantry did. Cause they were busy guarding gates and guarding prisons. And I was yeah. just fortunate enough in an assignment um, that I never had any you know intention of ever being in. Uh, where it just called for something completely different. So I, I, my first deployment was a great experience. Second one, was I was definitely a fobbit. But we were there for yeah. the closeout of Iraq, and nobody was doing really any kinetic operations other than right. other than special operations. So um, it was fairly much a waste of time. Uh, that said, yeah. for you, uh, you decide to leave active duty. When did you know that you wanted to do that, and kind of how did that decision all come to pass? Yeah, so I, my active duty was up in uh, November of 2014, and I never planned on being a lifer. You know, the Marine Corps was something I always wanted to do since I was a kid, but I knew I had other dreams in life that I wanted to accomplish. And I knew that 
as long as I was in active duty military, I couldn't accomplish those dreams. So I decided as soon as 2014 came, uh, I was 22 at the time. I knew it was time to, you know, hang up the boots and, you know, pursue my college degree and then go onward for my career. It's insane. You got out after four years of 22. I just got started. (laughs) (laughs) Um, all right. So you you decided to go to the reserves and everything else. So what are these other dreams and, and, were these things that nine-year-old Tyler wanted to do or you felt this, you know, this developed along the way? Yeah. So, I mean, from the time I was about four or five years old, I basically have wanted to be a filmmaker and, you know, direct movies. Um, I remember the first time I saw Star Wars, um, my parents got me the, the VHS box set. And it's always Star Wars for you kids, man. Oh, what, did yep. I, what did I miss with Star Wars as a kid? Saw it, it just it didn't resonate with me. I you mean, just, I like it, you it just, you know, it didn't motivate me. How imaginative it is for someone with a creative mind to see such a creative set of movies with so much special effects and so much amazing storytelling that just resonates with young people, with adults, with everybody and that leaves such an impression on our pop culture and really the way George Lucas went about making those movies is what made me want to do something similar um, with my career and you know just make something with your mind that turns out to be this amazing thing you know it's art and you know it's not the same as picking up a paintbrush and you know painting on canvas but it's, it's basically the same concept where you have this idea for something in your mind and then to see it come to life, literally see it form into a real tangible thing that you have created. It is just the best feeling in the world. And growing up, I made little movies, you know, with a camcorder. Um, I used to play with Legos a lot and I would make these little stop motion Lego movies. Um, when I was a teenager, I turned into doing um, what's called machinima, if anybody's heard of it. It's basically making movies in video games, um, which helped a lot because, you know, as a kid, you don't have a, like a, a budget or anything to work with. So you basically have everything you need in a video game. And you so you were the a, first sort of web streamer before it was popular. Basically, yeah. <laughs> um, back no, mid two thousands is when uh, now all these schmucks I, are making millions of dollars as as twenty year old kids playing video games online. You were doing it and didn't make yeah. a damn dime. Way to go, exactly. Tyler! <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, but, uh, by the way, real quick, yeah. you know it, it's funny you talk about the way the inspiration for the they made the movies. The first thing that popped into my head, I'm going to date myself here. That was the thriller video and the making of thriller. Now, if you ever watched the documentary on the making of the thriller video, which was you know, again, I'm an MTV kid, so the greatest yeah. music video of all time. But all that inspired me to want to do is be in front of the camera, like not right. behind it. So I had a totally different mindset, uh, hence why I'm sitting in front of the camera right now. But, you know, I had a totally different mindset of it. But, yeah, I, that much I can understand. You know, the, the seeing that inspiration um, for the whole thing, you know, g- gives you that drive. It's just Star Wars itself. It was great. I mean, you know, Carrie Fisher was, was a smoke show back in the day. It's good enough for me. Um, yeah. And Han Solo was a badass. But, yep. you know, other than that, it, it didn't really turn me on the way uh, it, it did everybody else. Uh, and right. 17 Star Wars movies later, I'm still missing out on all of it. So, <laughs> but so I you- mean, I'm not a fan of the, the Disney made sequel trilogy. But, yeah, I mean, Star Wars isn't everyone's forte. But, you know, 
it's enough peoples to where it's it's very popular. I mean, I do I do do a very good Chewbacca impression, but we'll save it for another time. <laughs> um, so you knew you wanted to do this. Uh, was there any sort of cultivation of it while you were in the Marine Corps, or is it something you put a full stop on and said, "I'll wait till I get out"? So I didn't necessarily make like short films like I'm doing now in the Marine Corps, but I did. So it was funny, like during my deployments, I would always pick up a camera or my my uh, smartphone at the time and just start recording stuff and taking photos and doing all the media stuff uh, for the people I was around. And you, I mean, you could ask those guys like all the time. They would be like, put the fucking camera down. Stop recording <laughs> me. Stop doing this. Stop taking photos, all that. And then after we got out, they're like, man, I wish we took more photos. I wish we did more videos. And I wish I stopped telling you to put the camera down. And, um, I was like, see, I fucking told you so like, these are memories we'll never get back. Like yep. we need as much recorded as possible. You know, we're never able to do this stuff again. I can't just say, I'm, all right, I'm going to Afghanistan. Let's go. Bye. Um, and I actually, both of my deployments, I recorded little montages, you know, just different clips compiled together with music and, uh, put those out just to, to show off some of the, the funny moments from, uh, the deployments, like the Afghan deployment. Inside the armory, like behind those closed doors, we were absolute animals. We pulled pranks on each other 24-7, and it was just nonstop polarity. And then uh, the Mew, I actually made a music video for um, the song Turn Down For What, when it, you know, that was like soon after it came out. So, uh, you know, I was still recording and doing little artistic things with what I was able to do. Um, just out of curiosity, uh, so, you know, you do the Marine Reserves thing. You do it for two years. Do you 100% know unequivocally that you want your Marine career to end at that point in time? I mean, it's it's locked in? No. So um, I actually took a little break in 2015. Um, when I So I, I got out fall 2014 of active. And then uh, a little bit past spring, I think it was May, I was like, all right, you know what? I think I want to be a grunt, like, in the Reserves just to say, like, I, you know, went in the infantry, like I wanted to do originally. So I was, I was literally like going to, um, infantry training for the Marines, for the reserves. And while I was there, I was a month, basically a month and some change in, and I had a massive heat stroke while digging the fighting holes. Um, they stuck me and another sergeant in a spot that had clay all the way down and we're in 120 degree heat. And we're just chugging away at this thing and, you know, just chipping away at this this clay in the ground and it would not come out. So we're just struggling and overexerting ourselves. And I just ended up going down first before my friend did. He was he was loopy, too. But I ended up having a temperature of 106.8, got rushed to the emergency room, almost died. The, the doctor told me I was lucky to be alive. Uh, I've been suffering problems because of that since like vertigo and panic attacks and all this stuff that I link completely to that because since then my brain has never felt the same. But after, uh, after I flunked out of that, I mean, I didn't flunk, I would have stayed to finish it and just pick up with the next course, but I literally was not under orders and I was, I was already approved to go to school, um, a month from then. So I literally wasn't school able is to in like go- regular school. Uh, I was going to, to college at Emerson, right? Regular. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I was about to start at Emerson and I, there was physically no way that I could finish with the next course. That's why I was, 
I was trying very hard to stay with my platoon and say, like, don't drop me. Like, I want to finish this. I'm ready to go. And basically because of the the military doctors, they refused to let me stay with that current platoon. So I would have had to start the whole thing over, which would have been another two and a half months. And I couldn't because I was about to start school. So I was like, fuck it. Like, I can't do it. So ended up going to college. And then um, after the first semester, I was like, all right, I still want to do the Marines. And I ended up just going back as an armorer in the reserves um, at a, a Air Force base close to home. They had a, a Marine uh, air wing unit there. Okay. Um, and then eventually you just do one more year and you say, I'm, I'm good. Or does something happen? Yeah. Um, so in your I, that says, I, I was good. Um, it, I was, it was right around the time of when I was basically getting ready to film the Hun and um, I tore my meniscus and I didn't find out it was torn until I was literally in the middle of my three, uh, three mile run on the PFT. Like I knew I had injured it. Um, I was actually playing two hand touch football just with my friends, like, and ended up injuring it. It hurt really bad. And then I just kind of like subsided the pain, like went away a little bit to where I could walk normally and stuff, but I didn't run anything until that PFT came. PFT came a mile and a half in. It was like the worst pain I've ever been in in my life. Like my friend even took a photo of me running it. Usually on a PFT three mile run, I'll usually run about 22 miles time limit. Yeah. I'll run it in 22 miles or 22 minutes. Sorry. And, um, I finished in 2808, literally eight minutes. I failed it by eight or eight seconds. And I've never, ever in my life got less than a first-class PFT. And I ended up failing because of that three-mile run. And I was like, obviously, there's something massively wrong with it. So I got an MRI, tore meniscus. I had to get surgery. And I was like, you know what? Like, I'm about to film the Han. I have to get surgery. Maybe this is just time to hang it up for good. Um, there's way too so- much synergy between us because I literally right now as we sit here, I have a torn meniscus and I have surgery scheduled for next month. They suck, man. So- I mean, the surgery bad but no the, the thing sucks but yeah i i literally haven't been able to run in the better part of three months it's i, I can yep. do everything else i can walk and move i just can't run yep. exactly um, so i'm just going to get it repaired but it, it's just weird I mean, there's too many connections between you and i at this point all right yeah, so right. um you get out now when do you make your first film so i had already been making short films i mean growing up obviously right, right. and then while i was in college i was making films for my college courses And at that point, it was funny because I was already insanely ahead of everyone else as far as editing goes, um, just because of all my prior experience doing the the online films, things like that, where a lot of these kids were coming in and going to college and they didn't really do any kind of editing before then. So I was already way. And, you know, you can instantly tell a student film when the audio is off. And, you know, the audio is probably the toughest thing to do when editing a film on I personally believe just because getting the levels right and making sure there's no fuzziness or anything like you know if you're doing a complicated film and you have so many sound effects and different audio tracks to work with it's very complicated so that's like instant turn off for student films but for me like mine were pretty squared away my editing was crisp and you know I was just ahead of the game but then so while I was in college uh my junior year basically there was so many rules as to what we could and couldn't make based on like security and safety for us as students. And I wanted to stray away from what everyone else was doing at my college 
where they were just making these stupid dorm room dramas and, you know, little relationship movies where, you know, they're out on park benches and just doing this stupid dramatic shit with the stuff that's around, you know, can't fault them for that. But I wanted to go outside the box and do something different because how else are you going to stand out as a filmmaker if you're doing the same thing as everyone else? So I tried to do something that I thought I couldn't do, or I basically thought was impossible at at this stage of my career. And I was like, you know, I'm a huge uh, war buff, history buff. And at the time, there wasn't really a lot to do with World War One, aside from, you know, films back in the day, uh, Paths of Glory and um, a couple others. But I wanted to make a modern World War One film. And I was like, how the fuck am I going to do that with basically no budget and, you know, to make a realistic or convincible war film at my stage in my, you know, student filmmaking career. And, you know, I just worked it out of my brain. I started developing the project. It literally took two years to develop. Um, You know, even though it's a short film, it's 12 and a half minutes, but I basically raised $23,800 through Kickstarter from all my friends and family and support. Um, you know, I literally just reached out to people over and over for 30 days on Facebook, just preaching to them saying why I think this is an important film to tell a military story about, you know, our troops who fought so bravely and are now forgotten because nobody really thinks about world war one. It's, it's kind of overshadowed by world war two and yeah. Vietnam. Um, so I wanted to tell that story and I just preached it to them. And, you know, even though I had basically no work to show them of me as a filmmaker, like a lot of people didn't even know that I made movies and they just basically felt my passion and they, you know, entrusted their money and their effort in me. And we raised the budget and I just started collecting all the costumes and designing the trench in, you know, little designs. And then, um, getting all the the casting crew from uh, people from my college and then people I knew back home who did film stuff. And um, after, you know, two years of developing, I basically got this thing together and we filmed it in fall 2017, August, 2017. Um, The trench ended up being 165 foot uh, length of a trench. Wow. And we filmed, in Pleasant Valley, New York on a, uh, my friend's grandfather's farmland. And they were, you know, his family was so gracious as to, you know, let us do that. And they also housed all the casting crew in their house. And it was just, uh, probably the best onset experience that any of us have had. Like all my friends who were there tell me it's an experience that they'll never forget. And probably their most enjoyable time on a, a film set. And, you know, it was a huge challenge for me as a, you know, first major time directing um, with such a big sort of project that had so many different logistics. And it was just an amazing time. And um, the film ended up coming out in on New Year's of 2018. And since then, it's just been success after success with that one. And, uh, you know, it's definitely what I'm most known for, but I'm so glad that I just decided to just go with my heart and not be worried about the what ifs and thinking that I might fail in doing. Um, there was challenges all along the way that I thought I would fail 
the whole project and it would be an epic disaster, but it ended up being a, an amazing success. And uh, I think my filmmaking career has instantly jumpstarted because of that. And it's given me the tools and the resources to, you know, progress to where I want to be, you know, as a, a filmmaker, just, you know, making films out in Hollywood is my ultimate goal. So in reference to a Marine Corps story, um, I know you talked about it before. I want to get to the, the film festival, but you know, yeah. a, a lot of young filmmakers start out by talking about stuff that they know and their own personal experiences and, and somehow transforming that onto the screen. Yeah. When did you get the idea for it? And, and you said you'd only told the story two times. Why all of a sudden did you decide to express it in this format? So I didn't even plan on entering the Victory the Podcast Film Festival just because of the format it was in where, you know, it's literally only three minutes long and you have to use a smartphone to do it. I've never worked with a smartphone to make an actual movie and I've never told a story in three minutes. Like, what could you possibly do in three minutes? They said you can't do a film trailer. So I, I just had like very little ideas. My friends who were wanting me to do the the projects basically were coming up with these little comedy skit ideas. And I just, I wanted to do something that would grab their attention and be heartfelt and not something that they would watch, maybe get a little chuckle out of and then forget about. And I wasn't even thinking about winning the contest. I didn't even think I'd be in the top 10. I just decided to do something following my heart. And I thought as I was thinking of ideas for the film, I wanted to do something that, I could sort of use as like a testimonial and like a little way to get something off my chest and express it creatively. So I decided to tell that story because it's, it's stuck with me since. And, um, you know, since I wasn't able to tell anyone else about it before then, I felt like that this is the perfect medium and having only three minutes to tell it. I mean, it was a little bit of a challenge to feel like I had to rush through it and not, you know, get more into depth, but it was enough to where I felt like I could tell the story successfully and basically be a hard hitting three minute film that grabbed your attention and didn't let go. I appreciated the uh, little cars demonstrating the, the whole layout of the thing that was, that was well executed. About boats. Yeah. Um, so you have this and, and between the white space is also uh, in between the white space is also what you're working on, which is, or your latest work about the number of suicides. Do you, do you get this idea that, you know, veteran stories and in particular military stories seem to have a different, you know, angle? Do they tug at heartstrings different? I mean, what's sort of the, the, the special part about veteran stories, not only that draws you to it, but draws an audience into them? I think it could do either exactly as you're describing, or it could do the opposite based on who is making the movie. You know, I think it's sort of like a, it's sort of our job as veterans to tell veteran stories and tell military stories where, you know, someone with military experience might not do a good job at it because they don't, you know, they're lazy. They don't get a military advisor on their projects. They don't know the experience like we do. And, you know, telling military stories isn't like my only goal as a filmmaker, but, you know, having such a, intense background with the military it's obviously going to inspire me in certain ways creatively and you know i draw all of my filmmaking off of personal experiences and 
interests and, you know, everything that affects my life. And with the military suicide thing, I'm trying to just strictly raise awareness of this epidemic that's, you know, happening within the American service members and veterans that people don't really think about. You know, we often see the number 22 veterans a day, but no one really thinks about why is this happening? How can we stop it? What what exactly is the common mindset or like what is a mindset that like what what draws someone to this conclusion that they feel that there's no other option that they decide to take their lives? Why are our veterans so often depressed and left broken after either combat or after getting out of the military in general and the transition? The transition is the biggest thing that people don't think about. And how different our civilian world is compared to the military and how disassociated normal civilians who never served in the military are from veterans. It's such an isolating thing that, you know, people don't think about. And I wanted to raise awareness for that and honestly pay tribute for uh, the three of my friends who did commit suicide, who I deployed with. And um, it also drew in experiences from my own mental health struggles and, um, one of my best friends from the Marines, his struggles with mental health and the conversations that we had on the phone. And luckily I was there and caught the warning signs. I was able to talk with him about it and be there for him in a way that no one else was. Um, so I sort of drew in all that inspiration to create an artistic piece about, you know, veteran suicide. You mentioned your three friends. I wanted to ask you, was there a particular one that really was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back? Or was it just all three of them together and a accumulation of things? All right. Well, two of them literally happened in 2015 in a matter of two weeks from each other. Wow. So in a span of two weeks, two people who I knew who I deployed with were dead from suicide. And it was such a hard hitting thing to experience that um, just as, you know, a friend and a fellow Marine to know that we all failed him, maybe not in the way that, you know, we, you know, we might not have seen the warning signs or we weren't around, you know, we're in different states. We might have not talked in a while or like just in general, like the people who we deployed with. But also um, it's it's so hard when our family members and our friends back home and no one really has that shared experience to where they might pick up warning signs or understand. And we don't know what living situations are like back home. And everyone sort of goes to different places after, you know, a deployment or after their time in the military and not everyone stays in touch. And it's just, it's so hard to see this happen to people we serve with good, good people, such nice, caring people. And, um, you know, you think about the, the moments that you had with them and you just wish that they were still around to treat the rest of the world with their kindness and their their character. Um, and, you know, you, you can never get them back. And it's it's just hard. Yeah, I, th I think uh, we all know they deserved a better fate um, and at least a better yeah. path than the one that they chose. Uh, so from that standpoint, um Will, will suicide continue to be or veteran suicide continue to be thematically something that you're working on or will you work in other areas as far as veteran stories are concerned? So as far as film goes, I'm not really 
I'm letting that film stand out as a testament to that topic. Um, I'm sort of straying elsewhere right now. I'm, I'm trying to not only focus on veteran stories because I don't want to be typecasted as a, as a creator, as a filmmaker, right. as a just veteran stories. So I'm sort of straying out a little bit. Um, I'm still going to sort of incorporate veterans in my projects and possibly in some of the stories and in things I do, but I don't want to only tell um, veteran stories entirely. Um, but I do have some other creative stuff in the works and I'm currently writing uh, my next film, which should be probably around 30 minutes, 30, 40 minutes. Um, I'm just like working my way up towards a full on feature film. And right now the biggest struggle is just trying to raise the budget um, time and time again. You know, I can't just keep using Kickstarter and hoping that people donate to me because it, it gets to the point where your budgets get bigger and bigger and you can't just keep asking people for money and trying to beg, borrow and steal. You have to, you know, find investors or people who are going to fully fund the film and it's, it's just a challenge. So that's, it sucks that it's not like a painter can just buy an easel and buy paint and buy a brush and they can just paint whatever they have in their mind. I have films in my mind and I'm not able to make them unless I can raise the money to do it, you know? Right. Well, if, if you need some help, uh, I'm offering my services as a good looking dapper baritone voice uh, actor who, who can play a variety of roles for a very, very minimal price. So uh, keep, keep, me in, keep me in mind for your, for your next film. Um, as long as you give me a role that makes me the hero and, and has people wanting to be me, then I'll, I'll do whatever you need me to do. Just a small right. little criteria for, uh, for my services. Um, but again, I'm always for hire, just so you know. Uh, so just out of curiosity, um, what's harder for you, uh, manning a 50 cal or editing the audio for your film? <laughs> they're both tough in their own way i mean 50 cal is easy enough as long as you do the headspace and timing <laughs> and uh you know there's no one flying at you at 50 miles an hour and you don't know if there's suicide bomber but yeah film audio man i mean not even just the audio just editing in general for you know in between the white space and the hun very difficult for me to edit um both for very different reasons white space was more of a uh, experimental with, you know, if you watch it, which I definitely recommend everyone doing, it's on my YouTube Mendel films. Um, it's a completely white background and it's supposed to be a seamless transition between shots. And it's just this, you know, text message conversation with visuals of the people as they're going through it. You don't see the phones because in my mind, when creating it, they're basically representations of their real selves. So you don't see them on their phone because they're in the phone conversation. And it's just this seamless transition between their conversation and showing them and, you know, different shots of them doing stuff. And to, to do the seamless white background uh, was very tough to do while editing. And then for the Hun, just to make a realistic war film on a low budget, very, very difficult to get the sounds right and the, the visual effects right. Um, thank God, you know, we did such a great job while, like, being there to where I didn't have to rely too much on myself in post-production. But, um, you know, I definitely recommend people watching the film so they can get an idea of what I'm talking about. Um, but very, very tough to do. <laughs> um, what is the skill or skills that you got from the Marine Corps that best helps you out in filmmaking? 
Good question. Um, as a director, leadership, um, leading from the front, you know, I've been on so many film sets where I was, you know, helping out a friend or not where I wasn't in the leadership roles. Um, I was, you know, extra crew on the side or doing a specific thing. And, you know, I've seen the cast and crew be miserable on film sets where they feel like they're not like, they just want to rush through it. And I don't think that's what a film production should be like. I always try to make my sets are fun and engaging and challenging, but in a rewarding way. And I'm always on the front lines of those sets where I'm just trying to lead from the front and show people I'm willing to do literally everything that they're going to do and that I'm asking them to do and, you know, show just, I will go up to every production assistant, every costume designer, every makeup person, every, everyone on the set. And I will make sure that they are good and motivated and happy and I think that's the same qualities that a leader in the military should have. Um, you know, small unit leaders, NCOs, uh, officers, they should do that too. And that's sort of the lessons that I learned from my leaders in the military, uh, the good ones at least. And I try to take those positive qualities of a leader and apply it to film. And just as a, a filmmaker in general, the, the qualities I would say, um, never saying you can't do it or never taking no for an answer when it comes to something that you set your mind out to do. Um, just refusal of failure in the way where you will just never give up to accomplish what you set out to do. Um, even though failure can be a great lesson, as long as you don't quit there, I think, you know, that's something that I definitely learned from the military I, facing I, adversity. I can't believe I forgot to to ask you this before, but I want to go back to the Victory the Podcast Film Festival uh, and yeah. finding out how you won and everything else and sort of, you know, the submission. I forgot to ask you this whole thing. I apologize. Yeah. So I submitted it. Um, God, I think it was like April 20th or something like that. Like literally we filmed it like the weekend before it was due. And then I edited it within a couple of hours after we filmed for maybe like three or four hours in one day and then submitted it. And I didn't hear anything back for months. You know, I, they, they kind of like gave a deadline of like when they would uh, release the winners and they didn't do it at that time, which, you know, I understand, you know, they're busy people. Um, so I was just waiting and waiting and waiting. And then uh, they finally were going to release the winners. And um, I had messaged Doug Allen, who is the creator of Entourage. He's also on Victory the Podcast. Um, I'd messaged him trying to share in between the white space on his Instagram without even mentioning Victory, you know, the, the film festival that they were doing or that I submitted or anything like that. Um, and he responded to me. And then he asked if it was anything like the, the project that I submitted for the film festival. I was like, no, it's a different one, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, and then he's like, we were just talking about, you know, like, hmm. <laughs> And he's like, we loved your work and uh, blah, 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 blah. And uh, we'd love to talk to you about it. And I was like, oh, my God. And then the um, one of the producers um, from them basically met, emailed me and told me that, you know, uh, spoiler alert, that I was basically a winner for the film festival. And uh, they were going to be getting in contact with me. So then, then they did 
a episode for the podcast where they announced the winners and it was amazing like listening to that for the first time and hearing how much they were praising me and my work you know entourage has always been my favorite show growing up and just because of the you know it was my dream essentially to grow up and do what they were doing as this guy from new york who goes out and follows his dreams in hollywood and brings his friends along and you know all the 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 cool things about hollywood and film and um living the lifestyle and so growing up watching them and then having them literally talking about my work especially at this stage in my life it's it was incredible and then a couple of weeks later um they got me in for a a zoom call um to basically interview me and they did an episode with all the filmmakers and you know interviewed them so it was awesome to uh to hear that with me and all the other filmmakers talk about their work and uh you know, knock on wood, they, you know, they said they would love to get me out to LA to, you know, meet with them in person and check out the facility and all that stuff. So I'm just trying to find a time within the next couple of months, hopefully to uh, get out there and go meet, meet up with them. That is awesome. Uh, you know, Kevin Connolly's a Long Island guy. Yeah. He's a New Yorker, Long Islander. Uh, So, and it's kind of funny, like, I've always said, like, I mean, I might not look like it right now with the short hair and the the beard and everything like that, but he's always been like my sort of like celebrity lookalike, you know, short, short (laughs) doppelganger guy. And I always fit in so well with his character on Entourage. Like, I felt like I was E. And just for him to be like praising my work now, he follows me on Instagram and uh, he's just such a guy. So for that to happen, it was just so cool. Yeah, I was much more of an Ari uh, lookalike and sort of personality and demeanor. Um, yeah, Jeremy Piven is is one of my doppelgangers, but uh, nonetheless, yeah, Entourage is uh, it, it hits home, always has, always will. Yep. So that's awesome. We should be nothing but luck with that. That's great. I, I hope it. Uh, I hope it blossoms into something amazing for you. So thank you. Um, where are you right now with everything that you were dealing with? You mentioned, you know, whether it's you know PTSD and a lot of the stuff that you had to deal with. You know, um, where are you with all that? Yeah, little you know, I didn't mention this before, and I I didn't really have time to on Victory the podcast when they interviewed me. But um, so I'm back in Poughkeepsie, New York, and I work for Mental Health of America. And within that, I run a program for veterans in a group of we have what's called veteran programs here. And within that, I run one of the programs which focuses on helping homeless and at risk veterans find employment. And we also have a housing program here, and we all uh, help with veterans' mental health issues. So I've been doing that for two years now, and I love helping other veterans and trying to change their lives. So far in the past two years, I've gotten uh, my program has gotten 68 veterans' jobs. We've gotten countless veterans housed um, and, you know, dealt with their mental health issues, which, you know, the VA and other people don't really do successfully a lot of the times. So I'm very fortunate to work here and uh, it's, it's just been an amazing ride so far, but it's, it, you know, it's also tough. That's amazing, man. I mean, it really is um, your, your propensity to give back and continue to, you know, make uh, veterans part of your life and, and tell their stories is again, as I said, at the top of the show, you know, I mean, that's, we're doing the same thing here. We just want to tell great veteran stories and, and give people an avenue um, to, to have the opportunity, you know, not everybody's going to be American sniper and lone survivor, but maybe yeah. they can be, 
you know, in, in the hun, or maybe they can be on the hazard ground and, and have their story told one way or another, or in between the white space. And, and, uh, well, hopefully you're not telling a story about that, but, you know, but you get my point, just that there's somebody there to convey what they went through in a way that maybe they can't convey themselves. And I think that's really, uh, there's a catharsis in all that. Um, for a lot of our guests, there's a, there's a, a sort of therapy session involved in all this. We hear that a lot from our guests and uh, certainly the people who listen, but I, I, I'm glad that we sort of are sharing that same passion. You're just doing it in a much, in a much different format. Um, so I, again, continued success and continued luck with that. I want to remind everybody again, The Hun, uh, a Marine Corps story, that three-minute short film contest that won the Victory Podcast uh, short film uh, for best drama and in between the white space. All this stuff is available on your website at tylermendelsonfilm.com. Where else can they get in touch with you on social media or whatever, wherever else? Uh, so my Instagram is at Tyler D. Mendelson, M-E-N-D-E-L-S-O-N, or they could look up my YouTube. It's called Mendel Films, or they could just type in The Han or In Between the White Space in the search bar, and it'll come up. And again, a Marine Corps story. Three minutes, folks. There's no reason for you not to. You can do it while you're on the can for crying out loud. Um, <laughs> but I don't recommend it because it is kind of intense. You might get more than you bargained for if you're on the can. <laughs> So, <laughs> but Tyler, listen, man, it's been great talking to you. Uh, I love this story. I wish you nothing but the best, uh, nothing but the best of luck going forward. I hope your film career continues to, to trend upward and, and that you much like fulfilling your Marine Corps dream, you'll fulfill your, your filmmaking dream, end up in Hollywood and we'll all see more of your work coming forward soon. But I certainly appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much for having me on. I've listened to a bunch of, uh, you know, hazard grounds, uh, recently trying to gear up for this and, uh, <laughs> You guys do such an amazing job, and I, I think it really is such a positive thing for the the military community. And uh, you know, I'd love to come on again in the future, give yes. you some updates, play some good ones. A- absolutely, absolutely. Uh, just thank you so much, Tyler Mendelson. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thanks so much, man. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show. Send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.